Hello. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top news in science and technology. However, let me make a short announcement. First of all, I'd like to thank those individuals that have purchased my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. In fact, you helped us sail the book to the New York Times bestseller list. Not only that, but the book also hit the Amazon bestseller list for the United States and England. And more recently, it has also hit the independent bookstore's bestseller list as well. So thank you so much. And also my publisher, Penguin Random House Publishers, has agreed to donate free copies of the book to your local radio station to do fundraising for public radio. I support the mission of public radio, and perhaps your radio station will receive some copies of the book to be used as a fundraiser to support public radio. And just three weeks ago, new evidence is coming out from Fermilab outside Chicago that maybe, just maybe we're onto something, a theory of everything. So we'll say a few things about that later in the show. But first of all, let me rapidly sum up some of the top stories of the past week. Our lead story today concerns President Joe Biden's very ambitious gamble putting his new climate plan at the center of his economic program. And he just recently participated in this summit on the climate. He did several things reversing the program of President Donald Trump. First of all, he rejoined the Paris Agreement that President Trump pulled out of. Second, he set ambitious goals, eliminate green gases from the power sector by the year 2025. Then, a 50% reduction in CO2 emissions by 2030. And then, eliminate carbon dioxide emissions from the entire economy by 2050. This is perhaps the most ambitious goal that we've seen in memory, given the fact that currently there are 191 coal plants, and perhaps all of them will eventually be phased out. And of course, that's going to face fierce opposition in the United States Congress, especially as we reverse our economic and environmental policy to accommodate the complete phase-out of carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. And also, let me say a few things about the coronavirus. Some people are saying that we are, quote, turning the corner on the coronavirus. About 40% of the entire U.S. population has received at least one vaccine against the coronavirus. But of course, people are saying that, well, they still have to wear masks because the virus is still circulating. We have not yet hit herd immunity. There's still a ways to go. But bad news is emerging from India. India, the most populous nation on the earth, is recording record levels of infection. In some areas, up to 30%, up to 30% of the population has been infected by the coronavirus. Now, what does that mean for the United States? Plenty. Because as long as the virus flourishes somewhere on the planet Earth, it means it can mutate. And these mutations can travel right around the world within just a matter of a few days and infect the United States. And so, in other words, it's a race against time. 
Can we vaccinate as many people as possible at the same time, quelling these outbreaks of the coronavirus in isolated and poor areas of the planet Earth? And then we'll summarize some of the news from outer space. The Mars Perseverance rover and helicopter keep on making headlines. Not only did the Mars Ingenuity uh, helicopter fly twice on the red planet, which is, of course, a first, it also showed that CO2 in the atmosphere can, in fact, be converted to oxygen so that our astronauts could, in principle, quote, live off the land, unquote, like the pioneers did so many hundreds of years ago. Instead of breathing the carbon dioxide atmosphere, converters will convert carbon dioxide to oxygen, which can be used for drinking water, rocket fuel, and for breathing. And speaking about outer space, we'll say a few things about the third successful space mission by SpaceX to the International Space Station. It is historic. And why is that? It is the first time in history that we've had a shuttle launch to the International Space Station based on reused rocket parts. That's right, the Dragon capsule and the Falcon 9 booster, both of them were used in previous launches. Reusable spacecraft, just like used cars, is going to change the economics of space exploration. It costs $10,000 to put a pound of anything into orbit around the planet Earth. That's your weight in gold. In the future, that price could drop by a factor of two, by a factor of five, because rocket parts will be reusable. And of course, there are good and bad news concerning out of space. The bad news is that four... Not one, not two, not three, but four explosions took place in the recent Starship uh, that, the, that SpaceX is experimenting with. But don't be alarmed, because SpaceX got a $2.9 billion contract with NASA to build the Lunar Lander sometime after 2024. Okay, well, let's just jump right into some of the big stories of the past week. The big story, which is going to affect the economy and world politics for years to come, is the speech done by President Joe Biden at the Summit on Climate, where he did several things reversing the policies of former President Donald Trump. First, he rejoined the Paris Accords. That is significant because the Paris Accords has within it a deadline. By 2050, a phase-out on CO2-emitting technologies. A phase-out by 2050. That's the commitment. But not only that, but President Joe Biden laid out a timetable as to how this phase-out is going to take place. First of all, by 2025, just a few years from now, greenhouse gases from the power sector will be eliminated. Now, this means that the big loser will be the coal mining industry. Coal plants, after many years of improvements, have still not been able to rein in carbon dioxide emissions. And in order to meet this goal, to eliminate green gas, greenhouse gases from the power sector by 2025, it probably means the coal industry will, in fact, be targeted. Two, the Biden plan calls for a 50% reduction in CO2 emissions by 2030 compared to 2005. Now, that applies for the entire economy, not just the power sector. A 50% reduction 
in carbon dioxide emissions by 2030, a very ambitious goal. Number three, for the entire economy now, by 2050, a complete elimination of CO2-emitting technologies. This is in accordance with the Paris Agreement. Now, of course, coal is going to take a big hit. Currently, there are 191 coal plants in operation. And look, to meet these goals by 2025 and 2030, the only way they can do that is a complete phase-out, especially by 2030, to meet these ambitious goals. Now, the Paris Agreement also had another goal, and that is to limit temperatures, to limit temperatures from increasing more than 2 degrees centigrade in this century. And so people are going to be wondering, is it possible not just to limit carbon dioxide emitting technologies on the Earth, but to actually change the atmosphere of the Earth itself? No more than 2 degrees centigrade in this century. That is the goal. And of course, there are going to be winners and losers in all of this. The big winner will be the renewable sector. That means solar, wind power, conservation, even natural gas. But there are major hurdles. The biggest hurdle of all is the United States Congress, which in turn is influenced by the power industry. So we'll see how that plays out. So the plan proposed by Joe Biden is a wish list. Many people realize that the meat grinder of the United States Congress will change the provisions, but at least President Biden has set goals, concrete goals by 2025, 2030, and 2050, and we'll have to see how that plays out in the ballot box and also in the United States Congress. Also, we should point out that on the environmental front, more bad news from Antarctica. You know, for generations... People have noticed that Antarctica is vulnerable to global warming, but people would say, nah, I mean, it's a huge continent. Parts of it will break off, but the integrity of the South Pole is not in question. Well, that's not quite so sure anymore. Now scientists have been able to look under the ice, under the ice, and they see rivers, unforeseen rivers of fresh water, warmer water, coursing underneath the ice of the South Pole. In other words, melting has been taking place even without our direct knowledge. This means that the South Pole is still stable, but it is not as stable as we once previously thought. Similar, the Gulf Stream is now being called into question. No one expects the Gulf Stream to be reversed or changed course anytime soon. However, recent indications are it could be unstable. Now, let me explain. Warm water from the Gulf of Mexico travels on the Gulf Stream up to northern Europe, and it warms up northern Europe. Now, if you look at a map of the world, you see that England is parallel to parts of northern Canada, which are frozen for most of the year. And this means that England should, by rights, be frozen. Why isn't it? It isn't frozen for most of the year because of the warm waters from the jet stream go across the Atlantic, warming the waters in northern Europe. If that jet stream is ever altered, it could create a mini ice age. It could cause a massive disruption of the entire atmosphere of the entire Earth, which depends on what are called the thermohaline cycle, that is, the Gulf Stream 
and other underwater rivers carrying warm water around the globe. And so recently, there's been noticed that there could be an instability in the Gulf Stream. We'll report on this later on exploration, but it's something to watch, something that we once thought was stable, at least stable since the time of Benjamin Franklin, who first recorded the Gulf Stream. We now realize that it's not as stable as we previously thought. Well, also, let me say a few things about the coronavirus. Some people say we're beginning to turn the corner because of the fact that about 40% of the U.S. population has at least one shot of the vaccine. However, scientists are also saying you still have to wear a mask. You still have to undergo social distancing. If you do take off your mask in a group, make sure that everybody in that group already has been inoculated. Why? Because we have not yet hit herd immunity. When we hit herd immunity, then it will be relatively safe to take off the mask, uh, go closer than six feet to our loved ones, but we're not there yet. Especially because new variations are being seen around the world. The new hotspot is India. We talked about the United Kingdom, we talked about Brazil, and we talked about South Africa. Now we have to worry about India. Why is that? Because it turns out that up to 30% of the population in certain areas of India have been infected by the virus. There's a huge outbreak in that country, the most populous country on the planet Earth. And why should we care? We should care because India could be an incubator, an incubator for dangerous mutants. Mutants that could then spread around the world within a matter of days to weeks. In other words, all of us are in the same boat. And this also means that countries that are poor, countries that cannot afford the latest in terms of vaccination, have to be subsidized for our own self-benefit because of the fact that if a new mutant arises, it doesn't care whether you're rich or poor, it, it's out to kill. And so in other words, we have to worry about yet another potential outbreak, this time in India, because of the fact that it could be a breeding ground, a breeding ground for new mutants, which are more virulent than the mutations that we've seen so far. Already the head of Pfizer, Pfizer being one of the leading manufacturers of a popular vaccine, the CEO of uh, Pfizer has publicly stated that we may have to have a booster shot within one year of vaccination. That's still being talked about, but it's out in the open now. A booster shot after one year of being inoculated. And does that mean a collapse of the vaccination process? No. However, on the safe side, to be on the safe side, Pfizer and also Moderna want to be one step ahead. And already they're manufacturing the vaccine which can accommodate the South African variety, which is more virulent than the other form. Also, news from outer space. The rover Perseverance keeps on setting new world's records. First of all, it had a helicopter, the Ingenuity, which flew on the Martian surface for a total of 30 seconds, the first time in history that we had powered flight on another celestial body. And remember the Wright brothers back in 1903, their heavier-than-air ship only flew for 12 seconds. So in other words, 
the, the Martian helicopter actually beat the Wright brothers in terms of the longevity of its flight. And now the helicopter has made not one, but two, two trips showing that, yes, it is possible to fly a helicopter in the Martian atmosphere, even though the atmosphere only has 1% of the atmospheric pressure on the planet Earth. Now, the atmosphere of Mars is almost pure carbon dioxide, about 96% carbon dioxide. You can't breathe carbon dioxide. However, that's why we want to use a chemical reaction to change carbon dioxide into carbon monoxide plus oxygen. This could be a game changer. Because remember that every penny, every thumbtack, every paperclip that is brought onto the Martian surface has to come from the planet Earth. So it's precious. Every commodity on the Martian probes is precious. Wouldn't it be great if we could, quote, live off the land? That's what the early pioneers did when they landed on the New World. There was fertile soil. There was rivers. Uh, there was areas that could be colonized rapidly because of the fact that the pioneers could, quote, live off the land. Food, land, supplies were right there. Mars is different. There's no topsoil on Mars. It's awfully cold, uh, usually below freezing. The atmosphere is only 1% that of the atmosphere of the Earth, and it's pure, almost pure carbon dioxide. So, what did the Perseverance spacecraft do? It took carbon dioxide, heated it to about 1,500 degrees, and bingo, it turned into carbon monoxide plus oxygen. And why is that important? Because oxygen then no longer has to be brought from the Earth to Mars. We can simply use the carbon dioxide existing on the Martian surface. And what is oxygen good for? Well, you can breathe it, of course. Plus, you can make rocket fuel out of it. And combined with hydrogen, you can make water. So in other words, this could be a game changer. Unlimited quantities of carbon dioxide for free that could be used to make huge quantities of oxygen, water, and uh, used for uh, rocket fuel. Also, another first for the Perseverance rover, it's getting ready now to do rock retrieval. Now, why should you care? Well, we want to look for life on Mars. However, we've only just skimmed the surface. We've only pecked here, pecked there, took some photographs, analyzed a little bit of the soil, and that's about it. We want to take rock samples and bring them back to Earth. Who knows? Maybe we'll find evidence of fossils, evidence of microbial life. That's what we want to do, rock retrieval. And if we can master the rock retrieval process, we can actually use that for astronauts. First, you send an orbiter around Mars, which then releases a lander. And then the lander then takes off back up again into outer space, docks with the orbiter, and then goes back to the planet Earth. That's the game plan for rock retrieval, which will be done on the next shuttle mission, not this one. Now, the same process can be used for astronauts. You have an orbiter which orbits Mars. The astronauts then take a lander, go to the Martian surface, do what they have to do on the Martian surface, and then fly back up to the Mars orbiter and then fly back to the planet Earth. So in other words, this could be a dress rehearsal for the next flight. In other words, a dress rehearsal for the piloted 
exploration of Mars. And speaking about artist space, SpaceX keeps on making headlines. The third SpaceX mission to the International Space Station was a success. It blasted off right on schedule, and it means that we're entering a new era in space travel. This was a first. It's the first time in history that we've had a commercial ship with a reused space capsule, the Dragon, and also a reused booster, the Falcon 9. Both of them were used on previous launches. This is a game changer. Now, why is that? Let's say that you use your car and you take one ride in your car and then you junk your car. You simply throw it away. Well, if you do that, then travel would be extremely expensive. Just think about that. Shelling out twenty, thirty thousand dollars just for one trip to the supermarket. Well, that's a space program. After we use the booster rocket, what do we do with it? We dump it in the ocean. And so now rockets can be reusable. The capsule and the booster rocket for this latest mission were used on previous launches, meaning that costs could drop tremendously. Right now, it costs $10,000 per pound to put anything into orbit around the planet Earth. That's your weight in gold. Think of your body made out of solid gold. That's what it costs to put you in orbit around the planet Earth. However, with reusable rockets, that could go down by a factor of two, maybe a factor of five. And to show that NASA has faith in SpaceX, NASA awarded SpaceX a $2.9 billion contract to build the lunar lander. That's right, we're going back to the moon. Sometime after 2024, the first men and women will walk the surface of the moon, and they'll need a booster rocket, probably the SLS booster rocket, and also the lander, which will be made by SpaceX. Now, you probably saw that SpaceX had four unfortunate explosions of their Starship rocket, but don't be deterred. The Starship rocket is really a rocket for Mars. That's really the agenda that Elon Musk is laying out. So, of course, there are going to be some kinks there. It's not the rocket that takes our astronauts to the space station. No, the explosions that took place were of an experimental rocket, which would take our astronauts to the red planet, Mars. And now let me say some things about the world of particle physics, my specialty. My latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything, predicted that there will be ways to show that the present theory, called the standard model, is incomplete. There's a higher theory out there, the theory of everything, the theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life, a unifying principle, a paradigm, a principle that could explain the entire universe itself. We think that paradigm is music, the music of subatomic particles. We have tiny vibrating strings, each note of a vibrating string representing a subatomic particle, and that gives us the spectrum of electrons, positrons, protons, quarks, all the hundreds of particles that we have discovered, nothing but musical notes on a tiny vibrating string. So physics is the harmonies you can write on these strings. Chemistry is the melodies that you play when these strings bump into each other. The universe is a symphony of strings. And then the mind of God. The mind of God that Albert Einstein spent 30 years, years of his life chasing after is cosmic music resonating through hyperspace. 
Now, of course, anything this ambitious to find the holy grail of science requires testing, and that's why we want to find deviations from the current theory, the theory of almost everything, called the standard model. The standard model works, but it is perhaps the ugliest theory known to science. It has 36 quarks and antiquarks, three generations of identical particles, 20 free parameters that you have to put in by hand. Now, this theory does work at low energy, but at high energy, we expect that it will eventually fail. Now, at Fermilab, outside Chicago, we have the first indication that, yes, the current low-energy theory, called the Standard Model, is, in fact, incomplete, paving the way for a higher theory, a higher theory that works at higher energies, which can unify, unify this zoo of subatomic particles into something as simple as music. Now, there's a particle called the muon, the muon is one of the constituents of cosmic rays. It acts like an electron. It is one of the particles predicted by the standard model, and it seems to work experimentally. However, the recent measurement of the magnetic properties of the muon particle disagree with the results of the standard model. This is big news, because it means there could be a fifth force, a force beyond gravity, beyond light, beyond the two nuclear forces, a fifth force out there, which is not part of our textbooks. This is big news, because it means that, as suspected, the standard model eventually falls apart. Now, the standard model, as I said, is the workhorse of particle physics for 50 years. For 50 years, we've seen almost no deviation of any sort from the standard model until just three weeks ago. And again, if you want to find out more about this controversy, get a copy of my latest book. It's now a bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. It hit the Amazon bestseller list for England and the United States. And now it's hit the independent bookstores bestseller list. Find out what all the excitement is about. And in the process, support public radio. My publisher has donated copies of the book so that public radio stations can raise funds and public radio can be supported. And so once again, get your copy of The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And in the process, you can support your listener-sponsored public radio station. So to me, that's a win-win situation. And for me, this also represents the fifth time that I've written a book that hits the New York Times bestseller list, it means that there's a real hunger out there. People want to know. People want to know what's out there, what's out there in science, and what science predicts could be the future of technology as well. Welcome. 
Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. We talked in the first half about President Joe Biden's ambitious climate plan. And the question is, is it too little too late? Is there still time, given the fact that we see an erosion of the polarized caps? And we have a special guest today, um, David Archer, author of a controversial book, The Long Thaw. So are we in it for a situation where sea levels are going to rise, which is going to disrupt the weather, more gigantic superstorms, not to mention that cities will gradually go underwater? Already, look at cities like New Orleans. Parts of New Orleans are already below sea level. Look at Venice. Venice already has a problem where they're unable to to effectively sweep out the water out of the tourist areas in St. Marco Plaza. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So with us today is David Archer, who will talk to us about the long thaw. And also in the first half of exploration, I mentioned I would amplify some remarks about what happened at Fermilab. Three weeks ago, there was a stunning announcement. For the past 50 years, we've had something called the standard model. It's a rather clumsy theory, but it does accurately describe the interactions of subatomic particles. But it is a real mess. 36 quarks, three identical generations of particles, and 20 free parameters. Nobody but nobody thinks that's the final theory. So we've been looking for a crack a crack in the standard model for the past 50 years. And we think we might have found it, meaning that there's a higher theory out there. The partner of the electron is called the muon. It is heavier than the electron, but otherwise almost identical. But now we find out that its magnetic properties differ from that of an electron, violating the postulates of the standard model. So if there's a higher theory, what is it? A fifth force could be emerging. A fifth force could be, and again, this is a big question mark, could be string theory. In other words, the particles we see in the standard model could represent the lowest vibrations, the lowest octave in some sense of a vibrating string, meaning that there could be a higher octave, which could mean, yes, we're on the verge of perhaps a big breakthrough. Perhaps there's a new theory out there. Perhaps it's beautiful, gorgeous, compact, maybe even string theory. Well, find out more by getting a copy of my book. It just hit the New York Times and Amazon and independent bookstores bestseller list. It's The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. In other words, the holy grail of science. For 2,000 years, the greatest minds have tried to find a unifying paradigm, a unifying principle, a unifying theme to the universe. Is this it? Is music, the music of subatomic particles and gravity, is that the music of the universe? Well, find out. The book is called The God Equation. Anyway, let's now go to our special guest, David Archer, author of a controversial book, the Long Thaw. Are we headed for a long thaw? Professor Archer, as a youth, how did you first get interested in science, and in particular, earth science? I guess I looked to the, the, the earth, the functioning of the earth, the, the stable geochemical cycles of, of things like that, uh, as something that's bigger than, than 
people are. I, I, I look to the natural world with a sort of reverence, and I, uh, I, uh, I think that's what brought me into the, the natural sciences, why I chose to study the oceans, actually, instead of forests or other planets or stars or something like that, uh, is because I've always had a romantic love of boats. Uh, but now I ended up living in Chicago anyway, but that's just one of, one of life's jokes, I guess. Okay, well, let's get right into it. First of all, what is the relationship between carbon dioxide and global warming? Well, carbon dioxide uh, traps infrared light that tries to leave the atmosphere. It's like if you put uh, a coat on in the wintertime, it, it traps some of the heat leaving your body, and so it allows your body to, to, to warm up. And the theory about CO2, how it affects the climate of the Earth, and how much it affects the climate of the Earth, is over 100 years old now. It's very, very solid science. But if there were no greenhouse effect, we wouldn't be able to explain why the Earth isn't in a deep freeze or the climate of Venus or, or lots of other things. It's very solid science. And, well, talking about Venus, some people call Venus the greenhouse planet. Uh, why would a carbon dioxide atmosphere for Venus make it the greenhouse planet? Well, there's 70 atmospheres of CO2 in the, 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 the atmosphere of, of Venus, so it's very, very thick greenhouse uh, forcing. It uh, has a very strong greenhouse effect. Actually, uh, Venus is also a very reflective planet. That's why it's so bright in the night sky. So if there were no greenhouse effect on either Earth or Mars, even though Venus is closer to the sun, it would be colder than the Earth because it, 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 it reflects away so much of the, the sunlight that would heat it up. Okay, well, now let me play devil's advocate. Uh, some people say, bah, humbug. Uh, the current warming of the Earth is a natural cycle. The Earth is naturally warming up. Other people say that it's the sun. Yeah, the sun. The sun is causing the Earth to, to rise in temperature, not human activity. And other people say that the Earth is cooling. Uh, what are your thoughts? Sometimes it's even the same people who one year say the Earth is not warming up and the next year say that it's warming up, but it's entirely natural. You know, ours is a contentious species. We tend to take both sides of positions, even if there's nothing to, uh, to base assertions on. If they sound good, they still can carry some weight. The Earth has clearly been getting warmer. Uh, that's measured, even though it's been a cool summer here in Chicago. Overall, the average temperature of the Earth is rising. Uh, the sun has not been getting brighter. We have... Uh, good measurements of the intensity of the sun from satellites going back a decade, a few decades, I don't know exactly, but it's not, there, there's a sunspot cycle that, that makes the sun brighter and cooler over 11 years, but there isn't a long-term trend at all in the sun getting brighter. So, you know, people say what they, you know, think people want to hear, and they people hear what they want to hear, but there is... You know, objective reality, we can measure these things and, 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 and say what's really going on. Okay. Well, some of the critics say, okay, okay, so maybe maybe the Earth is getting warmer. However, human activity, some people would say, no, no, it's not human activity. So what's the reason that many scientists believe that it's human activity causing the current warming? We can estimate how much warming to expect from rising CO2 concentrations in the air, that's actually uh, boiled down into a number called the climate sensitivity, which is how much the climate would warm if you doubled the CO2 concentration. 
And the first estimate of the climate sensitivity of the Earth actually goes back to uh, Svante Arrhenius in the year 1896, over 100 years ago, uh, who predicted that doubling CO2 should raise the temperature of the Earth by about 6 degrees centigrade. And now they say it's something like 2.5 to 5 degrees centigrade. It's really not that much of a change. Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a tricky calculation because it's very complex the way that CO2 interacts with light. But, but it, this is, by sort of normal non-political rules of science, this is a done question. So if you, let's say, were to remove humanity from the planet Earth, then you're saying that the Earth would not be so warm as it is today? There was a model uh, exercise conducted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So these are climate models developed all over the world, and they all subjected their models to uh, one set of, one scenario where you tell the models about the rising concentrations of greenhouse gases, and then another scenario where you only have the natural climate forcings, like the intensity of the sun or uh, volcanic eruptions can cool down the planet. And uh, if you tell the models about the greenhouse gases, they can explain the warming that has been detected since uh, sort of the 1970s. The warming, the temperature since the 1970s, that's the smoking gun for global warming. If you don't tell the models about the, uh, the, the greenhouse gases, they, they, don't, they don't warm up in the same way. So if you want to say that the warming is, is real, but it's caused by, you know, something that we don't understand in the climate system, which, you know, there will always be things that we don't understand, uh, not only would you like to come up with an explanation of what that something would be in order to settle the question, but you would also have to figure out why the CO2 is not causing the warming that we attribute it to. Uh, it's sort of like if you catch, uh, I make an analogy in my classes uh, to a murder mystery, because people always put on their thinking caps when they're reading murder mysteries. They don't always put on thinking caps when they're thinking about science. But So you catch the butler with the gun in his hand and the dead guy, and there's you know smoke coming out of the the gun, and your partner is sort of a contrarian guy. You're 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 a policeman trying to to you know solve the crime. Your partner says, "Well, I think the chauffeur did it," but you know, for your partner to convict the chauffeur, he's first going to have to explain to the jury what the butler was doing with the the smoking gun in his hand. In other words, translating back out of the analogy, if we want to say that the warming is not from CO2, we have to explain what's wrong with greenhouse theory that that uh, the CO2 should not be causing the warming. Well, if you look at temperature rises over the last many centuries, you see a gradual warming, because after all, there was an ice age 10,000 years ago. But some scientists say that there's a spike, a spike that is quite anomalous that is taking place in the last 100 years, and that's proof that it's human activity because it's not part of the natural cycle. What are your thoughts? Well, there is this large-scale glacial-interglacial cycle that you refer to. There's also uh, a sort of a milder, much shorter, I don't know if it's a cycle or, or just sort of fluctuations, but uh, back sort of between the 1300s and the 1700s was a time of generally cool temperatures called the Little Ice Age. So you could, you know, ice skate in Amsterdam and, and, and things like that that you no longer can do. And that uh, is correlated with... Um, uh, a dearth, a lack of sunspots 
which indicates that the sun was cooler. We don't have satellite solar intensity data going back to the 1600s, but we have observations of a number of sunspots that date back to you know Galileo's invention, uh, invention of the telescope in the 1600s, and uh, there's a correlation between the number of sunspots and those sorts of uh, climate changes. I think the climate, the evolution of climate up until the 70s, though, can be explained pretty well uh, by by natural forcings. It, it isn't until till the 70s that the the climate signal started to the human forced climate signal started to come up out of the noise of natural variability. Now, also, some people say that the last decade uh, was perhaps the hottest decade ever recorded. How far back does that go? Because, of course, perhaps during the dinosaur era, uh, things were a lot warmer back then. Sure, sure. So there are thermometer records that go back to about 1860 from Fahrenheit's invention of the thermometer. Uh, They can piece together uh, the temperature of the Earth going back further than that with what they call proxy records of, of, of temperature uh, from the widths of tree rings or from chemical measurements they can make in, in ice cores or sediment cores or something like that. And so they can record, they can, they can figure out that the Little Ice Age was cooler, and then there was a period of general warmth before that called the medieval optimum climate. Those records generally go back uh, a 1,000 or 2,000 years, and the conclusion of the last uh, IPCC report, which summarized climate, you know, for non-specialists and for, you know, for the, the community outside of your own field, very useful, very, very authoritative reports, uh, they concluded that current temperatures are warmer than they have been in 1,300 years. But if you go back millions of years, you're absolutely right, the uh, during uh, uh, peaking about 50 million years ago, the Earth was was it felt tropical to the poles, and there was no ice anywhere to be found. And this is uh, thought to be due to uh, higher CO2 levels in the atmosphere at that time. We don't have as good uh, ways of estimating what the CO2 concentration was when you go that far back in time. But the evidence that has been pieced together is all consistent that there's sort of million-year or tens of million-year fluctuations in the natural CO2 levels of the Earth that sort of drifts up and down like that. Now, scientists that have gone to the poles to extract ice cores, uh, essentially getting ice that was uh, deposited uh, perhaps several hundred thousand years ago to maybe a million years ago, they see that carbon dioxide levels and temperature levels go up and down in unison like two roller coasters. What does that mean? It's rare that you find such beautiful correlations in nature, I think. It's just astonishing. Al Gore showed, showed this plot in his movie. That's sort of how iconic it is. It's, uh, it's an astonishing thing. Somehow, uh, the, the orbit of the Earth around the sun has, has these wobbles in it, and that is thought to uh, pace the progress of the Ice Age cycle, when the ice sheets are going to grow or when they're going to collapse. But somehow the CO2 concentration of the air follows along with the, the changes in the climate so that when the orbit tells the ice sheet to make the Earth warmer, the CO2 says, okay, I can pitch in some to that too. And so it amplifies these uh, uh, climate changes. So which comes first? The uh, temperature rise comes first and then the carbon dioxide rise, vice versa. What's the relationship? 
Uh, it's a it's a back and forth cause and effect. It's a feedback system. So it, to ask which one is driving which, I think is like asking if you see two figure skaters, you know, twirling each other around on the ice. Uh, you know, which it's to try to analyze the trajectory of one without paying attention to the other would make no no sense. On the the uh, the deglaciation, the transition from the ice age climate to the the present day climate, the first thing that started to happen, as recorded in the Antarctic ice cores, is a change in temperature in Antarctica, and then a few centuries later, the CO two concentration started to rise. But then the total change in climate took much longer than a few centuries. So there's no way you could explain the climate transition from uh, the glacial world to the interglacial world without taking into account the change in the CO2 concentration. So it's, it's, a, it's a feedback loop of cause and effect. It isn't a, just one or the other drives, drives the thing. So summarizing, if you were to go back 10,000 years, we had the Ice Age. Uh, things have been warming up in the last 10,000 years. But is it safe to say that recently, in the last several decades, there's been a spike in temperature rise, and that's due to human activity? That's more or less true. Actually, the early, the, 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 the interglacial period is called the Holocene. Uh, and the early Holocene, right at about 10,000 to six or eight thousand years ago may have been warmer than today. The, the Earth's orbit around the sun was uh, in a different, you know, slightly different configuration than it is today. So it almost seemed like there was a, 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 a peak in warming and then, and then maybe a little bit of gradual decline driven by the Earth's orbit over the, over the millennia. But certainly over the last thousand years or, or, or two, the temperatures of the last decade are, are uh, anomalously high. Okay, let's talk about the present. Uh, what's happening with glaciers and the North Pole and the South Pole? Uh, we see evidence of the melting of the glaciers around the Earth. Uh, that's why scientists are finding so many uh, mammoth bones and even yeah. human remains because right. the glaciers are receding. So what evidence do we have that the Earth is warming? Well, we just have the thermometers. I mean, for direct measurements of, of temperature, thermometers are hard to beat. But uh, the, um, the the mountain glaciers are almost all melting. It's difficult for a glaciology graduate student to find an advancing mountain glacier to study anymore because there are very few that uh, that, that that exist. Um, the, there's uh, warming detected in the deep ocean. Oh, not. I mean, sort of. I mean, fairly deep, not all the way to the to the bottom of the ocean, but. But you can see the the warmth sort of penetrating the ocean. Uh, in the high latitudes, the Arctic is melting like crazy. It's the the sea ice covering the Arctic Ocean is melting much faster than any of the models a few years ago predicted. Uh, the year two thousand and seven was was a sort of a train wreck for the the sea ice up there. It just it just plummeted. Um, actually, in the southern hemisphere. It's not so clear what's going on. In the interior of Antarctica, it actually is uh, cooling, which is not, that's, that's something that the, the climate models also predict. Uh, so that's not a discrepancy. But the, there's also um, not been a meltback in the sea ice in the, in the Antarctic either. And I, I gather there's 
still some messiness about that issue that that maybe it's uh, caused by uh, changes in the the circulation of the atmosphere caused by the ozone hole, which is a completely different uh, sort of phenomenon. Ozone is a uh, it's a greenhouse gas, but it also absorbs ultraviolet light, and so it heats up the air that it's in in the stratosphere. That's why the stratosphere gets warmer as you go higher up in the stratosphere because of ozone. So by by wiping out the ozone in the the spring of the Antarctic every year, that changes the dynamics of the air, and maybe that's responsible for uh, a lack of global warming signature generally in in the, the, the southern hemisphere. Actually, there has been uh, very intense warming on the Antarctic Peninsula, which kind of sticks out from Antarctica up into the uh, slightly lower latitudes. And so you read sometimes in the newspapers about these ice shelves, these very, uh, very thick floating shelves of ice, hundreds of meters thick. You could walk on it and not know that you weren't on, on solid land uh, that suddenly have been collapsing. Places that have been covered by ice for, you know, since the last ice age uh, suddenly are ice are ice free. So there are signs of the climate change every place. The, the growing seasons have gotten longer. The Arbor Day Foundation has published uh, maps of climate zones of where you should plant begonias or tulips or whatever, and those have changed since 1990. Uh, there, there are all kinds of signs. It, it's more obvious in some parts of the world than others. Actually, in Chicago, there hasn't been much climate change since the 70s, but if you go up to Alaska, the climate changes have been huge. So, you know, local experience is not necessarily a good guide, but you put it together into a global average, and it's very clear. And also, uh, you mentioned how it affects plants and also animals with the changing of the growing season, uh, but also insects, right? Uh, some people are saying that the West Nile virus, uh, which has been spreading through urban centers, is in part driven by global warming. And then in the future, malaria could also spread. Uh, what are your thoughts? I'm not a public health person. I don't really know a, a lot about the details of this, but people that I talk to are very concerned about about the effects of climate on uh, uh, on on public health. Uh, I think the World Health Organization estimated last year that uh, there are 150,000 deaths a year that can be attributed to climate change. Now, obviously, that's a you know statistical sort of question that's not so easy to answer. But the people that I talk to say that's a very realistic. They have models of of uh, of uh, disease transmission and everything, and, and, and the climate and the insect vectors that carry the diseases are, are part of those models. Now, that being said, um, you can do a lot about malaria itself just with, you know, mosquito nets and, and, and you know, insecticides and things like that. And so I have heard the argument that instead of paying to reduce CO2 emissions, we should just pay to, for mosquito nets. I don't think the tropical diseases are the, the, the main reason why we want to worry about changing the climate. Okay, now let's talk about the thrust of your book, which talks about the future, up to 100,000 years into the future. Well, first of all, let's talk about the coming decades. Uh, mm -hmm. What's happening with the temperature on the Earth? Projections out to 50 years, 100 years. Some people say that on a scale of decades, major metropolitan cities like New Orleans, Boston, New York, San Francisco could be partially underwater. So what are the projections for, let's say, 50 to 100 years? Well, one of the big uncertainties there is, is what we do with 
CO2 emissions and energy, but uh, there's you can take as a baseline just to talk about what they call a business-as-usual scenario, which is a projection of how much energy people will need and, and how much fuel they will burn to get it if there were no constraint from, from changing climate. And the um, temperature changes uh, responding to that would put the Earth warmer than it has been uh, in, in millions of years. Uh, so, so saying what exactly the impacts of that would be on, you know, the the, the corn harvest in Iowa or or something like that is is really not a very easy thing to do. With respect to sea level, the question is all uh, how quickly can the major ice sheets respond to the changes in climate? The models that have been developed uh, in the past don't respond nearly as uh, as strongly as the observations that glaciologists actually can make in, in Greenland and, and, and Antarctica about how the ice streams flowing into the ocean respond to the changes in climate. You, you can measure more ice quakes in Greenland with seismometers than you could five years ago. And the ice sheets, the, the ice streams flowing from the ice sheets into the ocean are, are accelerating. So it's really kind of anybody's guess how long it takes for sea level to change. There were uh, um, events in the past called Heinrich events when the Laurentide ice sheet, which is in, was in North America, every 8,000 years or so during the last ice age would just collapse into the ocean. And there would be this armada of icebergs in the North Atlantic, and they would carry little rocks and sand and stuff like that that would then deposit on the seafloor, and there's no way for those to get there other than these ice icebergs. And so that's how we know about these events today is by finding those layers of rocks on the bottom of the, the Atlantic. Those seemed like they took a century or a few centuries, and they seem, some of them, to have raised sea level by many meters, which is much more than any of the ice sheet models predict for the global warming climate event. But I think the ice, a lot of people, everybody thinks, most everybody, thinks that these ice sheet models are just lacking some essential physics at this point. Well, some people say that the real problem with sea level rise is simply the thermal expansion of ocean water with the rising temperature of the Earth. And since the Earth is rising in temperature, the oceans are going to expand no matter what happens to the North Pole or the South Pole. Well, that's absolutely true, and that's part of the... uh the forecast for sea level rise by the year 2100, which is about a half a meter or so. Uh, something like half of that sea level rise is caused by exactly this effect, the expansion of the seawater. It's like the mercury in the thermometer that, that fills up more of the thermometer when the temperature goes up. That's a process that will keep going for uh, centuries. So the forecast for the year 2100 is not sort of the end of the line, that's sort of just the beginning for the thermal expansion of seawater. The other half of the sea level rise that's that's actually in the IPCC forecast for the year 2100 is uh, melting of, of smaller mountain glaciers like in the Andes and the Alps. And Actually, a lot of them, a lot of the sea level rise today can be attributed to mountain glaciers in the state of Alaska.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Professor David Archer, professor at the University of Chicago, talking about the long thaw. And again, if you want to find out more about exploration and what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. And you may want to check out my latest book. It's now a bestseller. The book's name is The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. You know, for the past 2,000 years, the greatest minds of the human race have grappled with the question, is there an overall unifying theme to the universe? Is there a universal paradigm? Is there a way to unify this vast universe of ours that seems so chaotic and random sometimes? Well, yes, you go back to the Greeks. It was Pythagoras, the great geometer, who thought that music was rich enough to describe the vast variety of everything around us, and he used mathematics in order to prove his thesis. However, it never went anywhere. The Roman Empire fell apart. For a thousand years, the world was plunged in darkness, superstition, magic, and people began to forget this ancient dream of trying to find a unifying principle for the universe. Well, now we're bringing back music. Music of subatomic particles. Because when you go down to the very basis of reality itself, you find a zoo of subatomic particles. And how do you make sense of this? Science should be simple at the most basic fundamental level. And this is where string theory comes in. String theory says, well, the unifying principle, as Pythagoras said, could be music, music of subatomic particles. That's why we have so many of them. That's why they have bizarre properties, because they're nothing but different gyrations of one fundamental object, and that is a very tiny string. When it vibrates in one mode, it's called an electron. When it vibrates in another mode, it's called a neutrino. When it vibrates yet in another mode, it's called a quark. And if you vibrate the string enough times, it becomes all the subatomic particles of the entire universe. This is truly amazing. Good day. <laughs>